live from Earth, it's Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We got an exciting show for you today where we are talking about Mars, Mars, Mars. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along live with our space cadets tuning in from around the world including such exotic locations as Louisville, Kentucky, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, London, UK, and more. Zagreb, Croatia, Columbus, Ohio, Pell City, Alabama, Halifax, England, Reykjavik, northernmost capital in the world, chiming in right now, Bristol, Indiana, Germany, Idaho, New Zealand, man, what a great audience we have today. Welcome, Space Cadets, all of you. Listen, it's Mars Day. Should this be like International Mars Day? Because that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. Cool, right? Like Mars is getting international. Mars is getting crowded. And already the Space Cadets are asking so many questions about Mars. So I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, oh, whoops, whoops. Sorry, Nancy. Uh, I didn't see uh, the uh, apparently the... Uh, the video that I was playing had some, some audio that was drowning me out. Sorry. I, I had the video up, Nancy. So I didn't see So Nancy, my producer is telling me, um, whoops. Sorry about that folks. Um, there's no way to go back and redo it. So, oh, well, this is, this is why we have a live show. We just, um, we just we just do it as we see, and sometimes there are issues because I'm a I'm a one man tech crew over here, uh, so sorry about that, Nancy Grazing, I'm my producer. And now I'm getting the messages that the 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 audio that was going along with the video was drowning me out because it was too loud. So uh, that that'll make for a fun recording. So <laughs> I don't know what you missed. Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> to me, uh, oh gosh, yeah. So, but anyway, like I was saying. Space cadets are asking questions all the time before I even started the show as space cadets were collecting. Uh, Zero Skulls over on YouTube was asking, is Mars worth going to? Why isn't everybody going to Antarctica? So yeah, like Antarctica, like we, we do go to Antarctica. We have, we have permanent bases in Antarctica. We have, we have rotating crews. Uh, we have McMurdo Station at the South Pole. We have, uh, or, or sorry, McMurdo is on the coast, right? And then we have the Edmonds and Scott base, which is at the South Pole. Uh, the National Science Foundation is oper in operation there. We have like telescopes and, and weather monitoring stuff. We like, there are lots of bases in Antarctica for lots of cool scientific research. Uh, no one country in particular claims Antarctica and yeah, Antarctica is cool. We do tons of cool science in Antarctica. So we do it. So it's not like you pick one Mars or Antarctica. Like we can have both, right? We can, we can have fun with both, but, um, yeah, zero skulls. You bring up a really good question. So I, and actually Edward Hinton also, echoes this sentiment by asking this Mars mission. It's just rinse and repeat in my eyes. We've been going there for 40 years and so no closer to finding life. Just go to Europa and get under the ice. This is definitely, definitely a valid question about 
what's the best return on our investment? Like, uh, yes, Europa is super cool. I'm fascinated by Europa. I would love a mission to Europa. One, a, a, a mission to Europa itself is going to be incredibly expensive and take forever. A Juno is already in orbit around Jupiter. And, you know, it, it was a massive, you know, multi-billion dollar mission. Like getting to the outer solar system is way tougher than, than tinkering around in the inner solar system. Getting under the ice, we do not have the technology to get under the ice right now. We don't. There's a hundred kilometers of ice, folks, and at those temperatures, it is literally as hard as rock. We don't know how to drill through a hundred kilometers of rock hard ice, especially in space billions of miles away we don't know how to we don't have the technology so it's not like it's not like we had uh, an underwater like a drill and then a submarine ready to go and we're like you know what boys we're going to mars instead because it's so much no no we didn't do that like it's gonna take a long while before we get an under ice mission to europa there's a lot of technology we're gonna have to develop and just the way budgets and development timelines are it's gonna take forever the the Europa Clipper missions and the Juice mission from the European Space Agency those are going to be orbiters around Europa. They're going to like splash through the the water ice plumes and uh and and try to to get a sniff of what's going on underneath the ice, but they're not going to go under the ice. So that said, Edward and Zeros calls you bring up good points, which is okay. Another Mars mission. Yay. You're right. We already have a we already have a Mars rover currently in operation. We just lost one like a, a year and a half ago. Wasn't you know, and, and still one is going. Curiosity and perseverance is a lot like curiosity. Yes, it has more instruments and it's heavier and it can go a little bit faster, but it's it's like it's curiosity 2.0, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But we have insight, we have the orbiters. Uh, we have Chan Wen that, that hopefully is going to land in a few months. Like, uh, and then the, the Europeans are ex- launching another mission to Mars. It's like Mars is cool. All right, I'm, I'm I'm all for Mars. Mars is super interesting. It's a very fascinating world. It's the nearest planet that we can easily access. Like, good luck getting to the surface of Venus. The Soviets tried that like a thousand times and got like three landers down to the surface and they last like an hour. So that's like no fun at all. So Mars is like the most easily accessible planet. So of course it's going to get a lot of missions, a lot of attentions because it's easy it's it's easy um it's like going to the moon except you know way harder but it's way easier than trying to go to the outer solar system way easier so would i i personally i would love another mission to uranus and neptune we haven't been there in 40 years which is ridiculous we have not sent a mission. We have New Horizons. Like I would love like three more New Horizons style heading out into the Kuiper Belt and beyond. I would love orbiters around the outer worlds. I feel like the outer worlds don't get as much attention. Uh, what's going on with Saturn? We lost Cassini with Saturn. And, and what's the follow-up? What's next? Do we get another Saturn orbiter soon? Uh, do we get another Titan lander? Like we landed on Titan with the Huygens probe. That was amazing. Titan is full of mysteries, but like, do we get a rover on Titan or are we just going to get five more rovers on Mars? (sighs) 
listen, NASA is complicated. NASA is a bureaucracy. NASA, they get a new boss every four years or so. They get new funding directives, directives like every two years or so. It's hard to sell long-term expensive missions in NASA. And so that's one of the reasons why I think we see a lot of Mars missions is it's, it's, it's easy. Or it's easy to sell and say, hey, you know that Mars mission we just did that was super successful? We're going to do that again, but a little bit more. That is much easier from a funding perspective, from a granting perspective. Uh, in fact, this is an issue I see throughout all of science. Uh, and I talk about I'm. I'm I don't know if you know, I'm, I'm writing a book. I, it's called The Sickness in Science, The Problems with Modern Science and How to Fix Them. It'll be out it'll eventually, probably in the fall or next spring. Uh, I just finished the first draft this week, actually. I just finished the first draft. Uh, I got to give it a good look through before I send it off to the publisher for editing. Uh, and I write a chapter about how science is risk averse. And I think this is a very good example of it. We will get good science out of perseverance. We are going to learn things about Mars. For the money, it's a safe bet. Like, it was very, I could, I could see how this was sold. It's like, we know what we're doing. We know the outcomes. We know the results or what kind of results or the magnitude of the results. And then, and this is how much it will cost. That's an easy sell. It's much, much harder to sell. Like, well, we're going to go to Uranus and Uranus and Neptune and just like poke around and see what happens. That's a riskier bet. It's a more expensive bet. The payoff may not be as big. There are more opportunities to failure. And so in like, I think I see science as a whole continuing, continuing to shift to this more and more risk averse posture where you would rather just iterate on previous successes rather than trying something new because it's harder to get funding for something new. That's my take. Like, So I'm simultaneously disappointed and excited about perseverance that's where i said that's where i said uh but before we continue talking about all things mars and then whatever else the space cadets asked me about uh let we, we i gotta i gotta catch up on voicemails i'm looking at my browser window here with the voicemail inbox like i'm overstuffed like like in 15 minutes i'm gonna be overstuffed with cheese right now i'm overstuffed with questions from the space cadets so so let's start let's see gregory m huff what do you have to say for yourself g'day dr paul i was wondering what are the limits to radio interferometry with the many small dishes of citizen scientists spread over the globe have any chance of useful or meaningful results that is a really really fun question you're asking about radio interferometry here and radio interferometry is the technique where instead of having one giant radio dish you have a bunch of bunch of little ones and it's and it gives you the effective uh diameter of the dish so the bigger the diameter of your dish, the smaller the thing you can see in the sky. So the farther away you put your tiny dishes or even antennas, uh, you the smaller the thing you can see on the sky. But there is a sacrifice. And to show the sacrifice, let me pull up like the, the square kilometer array, which is um, 
the next big telescope that's it's being built right now costs like five billion dollars it's gigantic it's huge uh, let me pull up a picture of it so at least the space cadets can see it here we go on wikipedia this is an artist's rendition of what the square kilometer array will look like like that's a big telescope like that's super wide and it's gonna see stuff that's super super tiny but in between all the dishes there's a bunch of dirt and when light from distant stars hits dirt instead of dishes, you can't do anything about it. That that doesn't turn into data. So only light that hits dishes turns into data. If it hits dirt, it's not data. That was fun. And so there are limitations. Now, one of the ways to overcome this limitation is to let the interferometer array stare at one point and then allow the rotation of the Earth to cover more of the sky so that you can pick up some more photons so they're hitting dishes and not dirt. You also have to be ultra precise with the timing between the dishes because you're comparing signals that are arriving at one dish and comparing them to another. And based on the differences in timing, that's how you're able to do all these reconstructions that you need to do. So you need to be ultra precise. Usually what they don't show in the, these pictures of all these fancy telescopes is the giant supercomputers doing all the number crunching in the back end. So you're asking like, could a bunch of citizen scientists like use their car antenna as a giant interferometer? In principle, yes, because as long as you record the data, you're good. But in practice, no, because you have to have such precise control over the position and the distance uh, between the elements and also the timing of the recording uh, in order to make the actual magic of the alchemy of interferometry work. And so there's just too many variables with people like using their cell phones or their car antennas or just sticking an antenna on their house in order to make that feasible. Uh, like the, the Event Horizon Telescope, which was used to Im capture the image of the black hole, that was an interferometer and it took them like two years to analyze the data to be able to get everything lined up just right. So really, really good question. I wish it would work. I'd love for it to work, but I, I just don't think it is. Who, who else have we got? Let me see. Steve. Hi, Paul. Steve here from the UK. I have some questions about the properties of dark matter. Dark matter has clumped into threads throughout the universe. Is this clumping still in progress? Also, the Milky Way is at the center of a spherical halo of dark matter. Wait, I answered this. I answered this, and I didn't delete it. I've answered this. Or do they boomerang back? Steve, sorry, I didn't. I try to clear this out and mark it, but I've, I remember it was a couple weeks ago. I answered this. Some, I probably lost in the fog of me ranting about Avi Loeb. So let's see, let's see, let's see. Oh well, Steve asked another question. Let's go for that one. Hi, Paul. Steve here from the UK. You recently saved me trillions of dollars by steering me away from my crackpot black hole fishing line project. But I've come up with a new idea. Space-time has waves in it, like an ocean. We can even measure the waves using our clever LIGO detector. So it seems the fabric of space-time is a real thing, a medium of some sort. My new plan is to design a quote-unquote propeller to insert into this medium, which will push a spaceship thereby 
bypassing that annoying requirement to carry trillions of tons of propellant for the simple task of traveling through the galaxy. Can I interest you in shares in this new enterprise? Thanks, Paul. Steve, I love the way you ask questions. I love all of your uh, pitches for business ideas. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. You're right. Space-time is a thing. It's an entity. It's an object that interacts with us. Uh, and and how it interacts is the presence of mass and energy, bends uh, space and time around us, and then that bending of space and time tells matter and energy how to move and interact with each other, and that is our force of gravity. So our force of gravity is the bending and warping of space-time. And so space-time gets elevated to be a creature, a thing, an object uh, that participates in the, the drama of the universe. Uh, but it's not a fluid. It's not a, a, like a physical entity. It's not an ether. It's not air. It's not water. It's not something you can push against or pull. The only way to interact with space-time is to exist and have mass or energy. And the simple presence of mass or energy causes space and time to distort, and then that space and time distortion causes matter and energy to move in different ways around it. So it's not like a fluid that you're swimming in. It's, it, it is the fundamental fabric of space-time itself. And I know it's a little bit weird to think about because every time we visualize, like I'm visually visualizing right now on the show, uh, like the bending and warping of space-time, you see all these grid lines and they get warped like a big trampoline. And, and yes, that's a great way to visualize it. And space-time is an entity, but it's also not a fluid now, that said, you can concoct ways to try to manipulate space-time around you to cause you to have uh, propulsion. It wouldn't be a propeller per se. It'd be a, like a contracting of space in front of you and then expanding of space behind you. This is the principle behind what's called the Alcubierre drive, which is a form of propulsion using gravity itself. Uh, in order to make that work, in order to form space-time in the way you need it to, it, um, you need negative mass, and negative mass is not like really a thing, and so that's going to be tough for you. So good luck with your pro space propeller idea. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to invest today. I'm not going to invest today. But we've got more space radio questions coming up from the Space Guest. But I did want to remind you that this show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash Sutter to learn how you can support the show. That's patreon.com slash Sutter. It really is your contribution. Listen, if you like the show, the, I, all I ask is that you tell people about it in or just enjoy it. That's really all I ask. And then really, if you want to do something, go tell people about, share the word. Uh, and if you really, really like it and you've got a few bucks to spare, like a couple bucks a month, that's all it takes. Go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter. You get early access. You get uh, private Q&As. Uh, there's some perks to the Patreon thing. Um, and so I encourage you to sign up. Also, if you're watching live right now, do not forget that you can drop a super chat over in YouTube. You just hit a little button and then uh, you can buy me. You can buy next week's cheese. Well, I don't buy the cheese anymore because I have a cheese sponsor, which we'll get to, but I still buy cheese for my own consumption. 
you know, not for promotional show, you know, just like on a random Tuesday, I need some cheese and you can buy that cheese. I suppose <laughs> uh, more space radio questions. Let me see. Uh, Russell is asking, can dark matter be folded space without mass? So in order to fold space, in order to bend and warp space, you need matter and energy. That is how it works. That is the deep connection. Uh, space and time don't really bend on their own. I mean, they can, but that's only on vast cosmological scales. In order, if you want to play monkey around with space time, you need matter and energy. Um, Edward, is there any way of absolutely confirming fossil or bacterial life on Mars with any of these probes or rovers that keep, they keep sending? Yes, yes. Uh, Jazeera Crater is the target of the Perseverance lander and the rover. That's where it's going to be roving around. We be, It's a crater, and we believe that billions of years ago it was flooded with water, and we can see uh, the like the 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 flow, the delta flow of water out of the crater. And we can see the evidence of all this past hydrological activity. And that's exactly where Perseverance is roving around because there was liquid water right there where it is now. I mean, it was a few billion years ago, but that still counts. And yes, it is equipped with tools to look for signs of microscopic life and fossilized microscopic life by by digging up dirt and staring at it super closely basically <sighs> another question uh when did they launch the mars chopper this is from campbell duncan yes i like the name mars mars chopper uh, there's a little helicopter attached to the perseverance rover it's called ingenuity it's a very light thing it weighs like a pound i think and it's more of a technology demo uh i think they're planning to launch it in a few months to give it its first test run and it'll do a few like 30 second hops uh to scout ahead for the perseverance rover but also mostly like just to test the technology can we have a, a flying remotely piloted or autonomous drone on mars if it works that'll be cool if it doesn't like it was a test anyway but if it does work i'm sure it will pave the way for future rover type missions now i want a rover on, i want a, i want a helicopter on titan that's where i want a helicopter i want a titan chopper cdp is asking have we found water on mars yet paul thanks for calling out my first name it's cool uh you're just cdp to me uh okay yeah water on mars water on mars water on mars is a tricky thing folks it's been a case of he said she said yes no maybe for years now uh, one of the first big pieces that people got excited about, excited about were these recurring slope linae, linae uh, where they would look at crater walls and they, the crater walls would get uh, darker in the winter and then they would fade in the summer and they would repeat back and forth. And they thought that might maybe like super salty water might be oozing to the surface more like like a slightly damp sponge and that would make it darker and then in the heat of the summer it would evaporate or, or reverse or something like that turns out you can do all that without water 
you can have those discolorations without water. And so that turned out to be kind of a dud. The most recent thing is that they're using the orbiters to bounce radar off of the southern ice caps. And there are regions in the southern ice caps where the radar can penetrate all the way to the ground and then come back up. And then sometimes there are places where like the radar is reflecting really, really much easier than it is when it hits dirt underneath the ice. And we think that there might be uh, these pockets, these lakes, subglacial lakes of water, just like there are subglacial lakes in, in Antarctica. So that's like not a crazy idea, but, um, it, again, that's not confirmed. We don't actually know if it's water. There are some potential other explanations for those radar signals. And also the radar signals themselves like aren't the most amazing data set in the world. It requires a lot of interpretation and a lot of massaging. And so you're not 100% sure. Have we found water on Mars? Maybe. That's my answer. That's the answer. Uh, Godmunder is asking, could it could be ORCs or signatures from other universes, like other Big Bang-ish phenomena? OCRs or ORCs, these are uh, odd random circles. Is that odd radio circles? I believe that's what it's. Um, yeah, the, we get these like radio uh, like circles in the sky. Yeah, who the heck knows what it's causing? It's not a Big Bang. It's definitely... Or it's not definitely not other universes because we see it in our own universe. They're like right over there. Um, I'm sure there's some very interesting but also benign explanation for it. Uh, Russell is wondering if we can use nuclear heater to melt the ice on Europa. Maybe. You're welcome to give it a shot. Uh, I Yeah, yeah. And M. Shivan, uh followed up over on Twitch. I've heard an idea is to use RTG, which is like a nuclear heater, to melt our way down. Um, <laughs> kind of rude if, if there is life on Europa. We just drop plutonium on them. Like, hey, we're from Earth. As a way, where'd everybody go? <laughs> uh, yeah, so we might be able to melt our way down because it is ice. It, it is in rock. Um, okay. Give it a shot. Who do I write the check to to make this happen? Do I do I make it out to Biden himself? Is that how it works? Um, I'm going to answer a couple more questions, but I do need to eat some cheese. The Today's Cheese, it's brought to you, us, by my good friends at Dom's Cheese Shop. That's D-O-M-S cheese.com. You know, they give cheese every week, and it's amazing. I mean, who? I'm living the life, folks. I'm living the life. In today's cheese, brought to us by my good friends at Dom's Cheese, all of our good friends, is, oh my, I'm, this is, I'm so curious about cheese. They give me, they give me a healthy amount of cheese. Uh, it's a French cheese. It's a French goat's cheese. It's a chev. So this is uh, Cœur du Berry, or the heart of berry. And it's, and of course, they, they offer it in these little, like, heart-shaped um, lumps, not the most descriptive here, but it works. Uh, heart-shaped packages, so it's very, very cute. And, oh gosh, and this is, what's interesting about this particular, Carol Berry, this particular Chev, it's it's uh, one, it's produced in only one region, uh, south of the Loire River. Um, whew, it's dedicated to Saint-Valentin. St. Valentine is a very smooth, uh, supposedly hazelnuts here, notes here, maybe some floral notes. Oh, but this is very, very special because this isn't just any goat's cheese, folks. 
This is goat cheese. Can you see this? Can you see this underneath the wrapping? This is goat cheese um, covered in ash. Yeah, you heard me right. It's ash. Like, wow. Like, like burn like wood and then ash. So it's, I can smell it. It's, you know, you know, goat cheese has this very sharp, very tangy. Uh, this has been hanging out, out outside the fridge for a while. So it's very, very soft. And then very fascinating. I'm going to take a little piece over here like this. Oh, it's very gooey, very melty. I don't have any crackers. I'm just eating it right off my fingers. I think I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. Wow. That is perhaps the the brightest goat cheese I've ever had. It is very strong fruity notes, floral notes, just like very sharp tang, almost like a, wow. But then the ashes, I, I don't know where I was going with the last sentence. I was just lost. So very fruity, very sharp, very tangy, which is super fun. But then the ash adds this like very uh, earthy, mushroomy, very cool air. This is a very complicated cheese. This is a very complicated cheese. Like, there's a lot going on in my mouth. It's going to take me a while to, like, sort through all these emotions. But I think I'm, I'm going to enjoy the journey, for sure. Thank you so much, Dom's Cheese, D-O-M-S Cheese, dot com. Uh, Russell wants his, uh, kid already, he's a few steps ahead of us and he wants to colonize Mars. And he, we said, would it be better to plug a cave and pressurize that rather than trying to make the entire planet habitable? Yeah. Like a terraforming Mars is like going to take so much energy. You like, oh, this would be a fun calculation. Would it be energetically cheaper to just move Mars closer to the sun than try to terraform it? by trying to increase the sound. That'd be a fun back of the envelope calculation. Next vacation. I'll do that. Astro B, what do we get back from all this expenditure? We get cool science. No doubt Perseverance will deliver some very, very cool science. We might even get a few surprises. But it is a very, very safe bet. It is a very... Uh, Edward Hinn... Oh, is asking about interferometers. Why are the dishes so randomly spread rather than in a grid? Uh, the, the dishes in any interfer, in a interferometer are chosen in a very specific way uh, to, one, maximize the amount of area that is captured on the sky. So if you put just the dishes in a grid and then you imagine the grid rotating, which is what happens when the Earth rotates and you stare at one spot at the sky, uh, then you're getting multiple coverage of the same patches of sky with multiple dishes. So you get a lot of redundancy, which can be good, but then what's the point of building an interferometer? So you want to scatter it around so you get different patches of the sky. Each each telescope is looking at its own unique space. Uh, but then also we use different configurations of the dishes. So sometimes you want to use like 
uh, one set of the dishes for one kind of observation where you're trying to sacrifice like a little bit more di effective diameter for a little bit more coverage or vice versa. So we like to have different configurations of the dishes. And so they're not scattered around randomly. There is a structure to it, but the structure is uh, not necessarily apparent just by staring at it on the ground. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter to learn how you can contribute. Thank you, Nancy Graziano, for producing the show and wrangling the space cadets. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all the info, links to the podcast episodes, episode archive. Follow me on social media. I'm at Paul Matt Sutter. And of course, thank you again, space cadets, for listening. See you next week. End of transmission. <laughs>